Welcome to the Regista Room, the podcast where soccer goes off field. Here's your host, Paul Varian. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Regista Room, your premium source of amateur soccer business talk. No X's and O's here, friends, because that's right. This is where amateur soccer goes off field. And today we're going off field with a theme of planning. Now, firstly, don't worry. I'm not going to spend the next hour walking you through the process of how to develop a strategic plan because you've guessed it. We have a sport business tutorial just for that, just released a couple of weeks ago. That'll bring you through Capitalist Consulting's tried and tested 10-step approach to developing an effective strategic plan for your soccer club. You can rent it right now, of course, at capitalistlearning.com, which I trust you're all subscribing to at this stage. So what about planning? Well, let me start by saying it's a crucial topic that really all great amateur soccer organizations that are well run and get the most out of their staff and volunteers respect greatly. And it's kind of topical right now because there's been an explosion of sport organizations in general turning now to the development of new strategic plans in particular as they finally start to work themselves out post-pandemic. So in this episode of The Register Room, we aren't going to lecture you with the fundamental planning process. Keep listening. It's going to be cool. Instead, we're going to, through the great guests we have lined up, highlight and examine what post-pandemic planning looks like, laced that it is with all kinds of idiosyncrasies, now that's a big word, that weren't there as much in 2019. Well, like what, I hear you say. How has planning changed from what it was like in 2019? Well, firstly, if there's one thing the pandemic's brought to life in sport management, it is uncertainty. And this has greatly impacted the nature of soccer organizations planning and at times it's led them to decide not to plan at all. It's just too volatile at times to make any sense. Those that did plan realized I think that for a plan to be of any use they had to do two fundamental things and they are these. Firstly, strategic plans needed to be higher level and without the traditional sort of tactically focused hard KPIs that are associated with them so these plans could be flexible enough to bear the uncertain and often changing business conditions the pandemic was throwing at these organisations and still remain relevant strategic references for the club's board and management to follow. And secondly, supporting operational plans, which, as you know, are the plans that detail the programmes and activities that put a strategic plan into action. Well, these needed to be simplified and reduced in length and term. And in the latter, in terms of term, I saw operational plans over the last couple of years that were no longer annual plans, as was traditionally the length of time they would be linked to annual operating budgets. But instead, these plans were quarterly or even monthly. And at times, I saw some soccer organizations at the height of the chaos of the pandemic literally planning week to week. Another major change I think the pandemic brought that has affected how soccer organizations plan has been this notion of amateur sport essentially being the property of community. The very act of taking amateur sport away from us showed how much it meant to us in the provision of quality of life, particularly in our youth. And the importance of the youth sport coach in the lives of many young people was heavily underscored. I spoke to many soccer coaches during the pandemic who described themselves at times as more of social workers than technical instructors of sport. And this was particularly the case for high, partic high participation team sports like soccer. 
So the result from a planning perspective is many amateur sport organizations use their planning to redefine or at least strengthen the connection between themselves as sport organizations and the local communities that they served. So this often meant rewording of vision and mission statements, or maybe a greater focus on organizational values and culture, and strategic goals more focused on things like inclusion and accessibility more than advanced athletic development or podium and performance results. We're going to look at a case study example of this in one of our interviews later in this episode. And finally, a big one that I have to say is still very much lingering around today, even though it feels like we're through this pandemic, and that is organizational capacity. And any register rumors out there who are members of boards of directors of amateur soccer clubs, please listen carefully to this. Many amateur soccer clubs had to scale down their capacity drastically over the pandemic. You all know that. But what not has widely been acknowledged are two things. Firstly, the drain of capacity has been far more than the system intended and actually continues to this day. Sport organizations chose to let some people go, but more followed out the door than we planned for. And sadly, they're continuing to go. And two, The recovery to pre-pandemic operating capacity has been harder and importantly slower than we expected. And this largely relates to the availability of people. So if you are in planning mode, as many amateur soccer clubs are right now, look carefully and critically at what you can manage, particularly over the next 24 months, and especially in things that you're planning for that are new and may require new capacity or new skill sets. Everybody wants to come back to play right now. I estimate from anecdotal estimates I've heard from clubs around uh, the continent that soccer registrations are up about 10 to 15 percent, at least in Canada, uh, at the moment on 2019 pre-pandemic levels. But it wasn't that way last year. Some some research I've been working on on the genuine impact of the pandemic in the Canadian sports system, and watch out for research papers, guys. I'm compiling right now on this that will be published shortly on, guess where? Yep, capitalistlearning.com. Those research papers will show that Canadian amateur sport organizations on average contracted by over 28% from 2019 to 2021 in terms of participant registration count. Clubs had to cut back even with government emergency assistance. If they didn't cut back, people left anyway, particularly we're finding now coaches, match officials and crucial club administrators and executive leaders who have this precious tacit knowledge of how to run their club's programs that is so hard to replicate or replace, certainly with haste and sadly isn't often not very well documented. So we find ourselves now with an amateur soccer community that desperately wants to get back to play. But a soccer system, as a soccer system, we simply cannot operate at 2019 levels yet. And that isn't limited to amateur soccer. For example, try catching an international flight right now and see how the security lineups look. Go to a restaurant and observe that seating areas are often cordoned off because the establishment simply can't staff the tables. And here's the thing, it may get worse. There are many people in amateur sport, executive leadership in particular, who are there in body but just look done. They're exhausted, mentally stressed, sometimes physically beaten down. And the idea of climbing the hill they now face to bring their organizations back to 2019 levels, it just looks too daunting for some. And it would be naive to not expect that yet more expertise that's just burnt out 
will continue to leave over the coming months. This capacity versus demand issue is everywhere and it's real and it must be acknowledged by you if you're responsible for planning your soccer club's activities. Factor in slower recovery. Look carefully at your ability to execute, especially on things that are new, and lowball it in your planning. Expect the worst. Examine succession planning and enterprise risk exposure. You may have it in your staffing position. The risk component of planning has really never been more important. So, enough of my thoughts. Let's move to three great interviews we have for you today. We're going to walk the walk on this stuff around planning from soccer, other sports, and indeed the not-for-profit association space at large. Coming up after the break on the Register Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. Are you an amateur sport leader looking for quality professional development? If so, your search is over. Introducing Capitalist Consulting's new sport business tutorial series. We'll teach you what you need to do to run your club better. These tutorials target the key areas of sport business. Governance, risk, planning, marketing, technical oversight, sponsorship, and modern volunteerism. Access and enjoy these tutorials when you want and where you want. Go to capitaslearning.com and get learning with me today. Do you have a story to tell? The Regista Room is built on real-world stories and experiences from amateur soccer clubs everywhere that we can explore, discuss, and learn from. Have you innovated a solution to a problem, challenged the norm, tried something different, thought outside the box, or taken a risk, and it's paid off? If so, we want to hear from you on the Regista Room. Contact us today with your story at content at registaroom.com and let's better the game with our shared soccer experiences. Welcome back, friends, to this episode of The Register Room, where we're exploring the theme of planning. And my first guest today is the president of a large amateur soccer club that's not only fully implemented our 10-step process on the development of an amateur sports strategic plan, but also done a brilliant job of implementing the plan, evaluating it, and transparently disclosing how effectively it's managed the plan's implementation, a process which has openly shown both successes and failures in this regard. Coquitlam Metroford Soccer Club is a well-established soccer club located in Coquitlam, a northeastern suburb of Vancouver in Canada that's experienced considerable growth and development in recent years. Metro Ford, as the club is often dubbed, has had a reputation for technical excellence and a commitment to player development over the years, which remains to this day. And under the leadership of long-serving president Alex Barnardson, the club undertook an independent review of its technical operations in 2014 and then decided to extend this to its planning of its organization as a whole the following year in 2015. I was delighted and privileged to help Alex and Metro Ford out in the development of this plan. And the process crafting it was a real journey and a great case study of how to build great stakeholder value into your strategic plan and use it as a guiding light for budget deployment, executive accountability, and keeping the board honest in its governance role. This is a great interview that you should pay careful attention to if you're a skeptic of strategic plans and the value they bring, or if you're looking for a good reason to develop one. 
But an advance warning for you here, friends. I wasn't in my studio when I recorded this interview and my microphone was terrible. So be prepared for me sounding like I'm broadcasting from the moon or for those of you who are old enough to know, singing the verses from Video Killed the Radio Star. Enjoy Regista Rumors. Alex, thanks for joining us today. How are things on the West Coast? Things are great. Pleasure to be with you. It's been a long great. time. Wonderful indeed. Well, Alex is here to join us today to talk about the strategic planning process that Coquitlam Metroford Soccer Club uh, undertook a number of years ago. When when did you start that planning process? I'm trying to think back. It came after two uh, interactions. One, we brought United coaches in to do a technical assessment. And then so we wanted that technical assessment to be balanced with an overall organizational assessment. What did you like about the process that, that was undertaken? The process we went through was extremely comprehensive. Um, number one, number two, it was it was very turnkey. So you know we were involved, in, I mean, intimately involved with driving the process. But the actual production and the engagement, um, there was a high degree of trust with our board to empower you to do that on our behalf, and the outreach and and thus inputs into the plan with uh, community stakeholders, with members, with partners was very extensive um, um, judgments or assessments on what we were doing. So it was very good to quantify and validate that. What we, one of the big outcomes that we wanted was a more effective way to communicate progress right. and to give members and stakeholders inside, insight into what was going on behind closed doors. Because that's um, historically been a significant criticism, like what's going on? How do you make these decisions? Are you working in our interests or your interests? And so the whole communication process to talk about where we were going and how we were going to get there was the valuable thing. We were not overly concerned about investing. And it was at a point in time from a strategic plan perspective where the board was discussing a significant transition away from being operational and attempting to become more strategic. And, and the strategic plan, one of the biggest positive outputs of the strategic plan in my perspective was it provided a roadmap for us to orchestrate that transition in a financially and operationally and time-based approach that was solid. I remember the feedback that we got right after we rolled it out or the first cycle after we rolled it out and everybody had been engaged in those meetings and the, and the questionnaires and the, and the input. And so they then were on us to say, what's progress? How are we doing? Cool. I haven't heard anything. <laughs> Which That's was a great. nice thing, right? Because they were holding us accountable. Yeah. So let's move to execution of the plan. You got the plan um, completed. Tell us about how, move, how you moved that plan into action. In, in particular, there are any difficulties you found doing that. I think that it, this was, I think, our biggest challenge, like taking the plan and operationalizing it and ensuring that we live the plan at a board level um, and at a staff level. So when we look backwards, we feel that this is one of our failings during that five-year period. Um, and it's one of the areas that we're focusing on looking forward. Like, how do we really integrate the plan into the DNA of the organization at the board level, at the staff level, 
primarily, secondarily at the, the member level. I think we did um, a very comprehensive job on the, the dashboard and the scorecards. And, and some people would say, secondarily, the next iteration of the plan should maybe drive some more focus and be narrower uh, and probably possibly be shorter in length. So instead of being a four to five year plan, be a two to three year plan and just iterate it more frequently. Um, it needs to be talked about at every board meeting. It needs to be talked about at every staff meeting. Uh, we, we would do it annually uh, quite successfully, um, semi-annually quite successfully, but that's about where it stopped because we just, you get so distracted just by, by doing. Um, but overall, we feel we made good progress. So if we look at it being our third plan, you know, every step along the way, we feel like we've done continuous improvement, but uh, as is common for us, um, good enough never is. So now the next iteration has got to be even better. The, the area I often find has the biggest problem or the, the constituency of an organization that has the biggest problem is usually management, right? Because they're suddenly being asked to report differently, as you probably recall and know, most executive directors or technical directors and amateur soccer their reporting is sort of a, here's, how, here's what went on at the club this month type narrative, right? But that's quite tactical and sort of uh, storytelling based. Whereas if you have a strategic plan, you've got to start reporting yeah. to specific deliverables and that changes things. There's also no corners to hide in Alex, which I've, I've noticed that executive directors are really keen on a strategic plan until they realize that they're suddenly really accountable month to month and they can't hide behind sort of wish-wash reports. How did your management team uh, on both sides, the blue suit and the tracksuit side, sort of manage with moving into that new paradigm of, of accountability? I, I think that we struggled with that, to be honest. And, and mm. keeping in mind that we were transitioning from uh, our technical director, Sarah Maglio, getting promoted into executive director role. Um, and uh, her background is the sport, yeah. uh, the coaching, the technical side of things. And this is mo much more operations management and uh, executive management. And so, frankly, in hindsight, I'm okay with that. This is part of the learning process. As yeah. we go through the next iteration, the plan, which will be a refresh of the current plan, in my view, that, that'll be subject to board agreement, obviously, but I think that that's pretty broadly agreed but it'll be much more staff led this time. They right. might have, you know, some external support. Um, but I think that the big learning is unless they're building the plan, do they really own it? So the previous iteration was very much the board plan. Sarah was involved, but now as the teams built out on the staffing side of the club, the next iteration we are looking at as being the staff's plan. But that's so great because that's also that that starts in, in in my opinion anyway in my experience, you start to build genuine teeth into your management capability on your staff, right? Because, as you say, I mean, um, if you plan for your staff and hand on the staff, they will never move beyond task based line um, staff type mindsets, right? Yeah. But if they yeah. have to build the plan, and there's a lot that goes into that, as as we know, having gone through it. 
and you make it their responsibility, you're suddenly now building all kinds of decision-making um, into your staff complements. The, the other side of that, though, is your board then has to move again to be move up another level again. Is that something you've considered and discussed? It's, it's something we've considered. We have had some discussions about it. Um, we've pretty been pretty successful at separating the board from operations and, and, yeah. and reminding the board, you have an input, that's not your decision. Uh, I mean, I can think back, I think it was during this five-year period, I'm quite certain it was, a situation at the board table where somebody was basically calling into question what... Um, staff leadership was recommending. And at that point in time, I said, well, okay, well, look, you understand that that's staff's decision. Yeah, I understand it, but I don't think it's the right decision. I said, okay. So then at this point in time, are you, do you feel strongly enough to table a motion of non-confidence? And the board member went, what are you talking about? I said, well, if you're telling us as a board that you're in a, not in agreement or don't want to follow staff recommendation, that means you don't have confidence in staff. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I said, yes, you are. Exactly. I'm just painting it in a different light. So it's really hard when you've got dedicated volunteers that are immersed in the details, yeah. probably know the job better than staff at that point in time and handover to convince them to trust to let go. As we started to invest in new staff positions, there was the typical push and pull. Can we afford to do this? When do we do this? Who do we hire? How much do we pay? Uh, and so when we mapped out the budgets for staffing, which is a big expense for most, the biggest expense for most volunteer organizations, there was that push and pull. Yes. And so we just basically said, but wait a second. We said in the strap plan that we are going to do this. Why are we changing our mind? Right. And, and it, it just deflected the conflict that happens in these discussions to you're right. We already agreed to this. Yeah. Now we're just having a discussion about the details of how, and maybe yeah. some variations around timing, but we, we then recircled and said, yeah, that's what we agreed to. We need to make this happen. Yeah. So you mentioned Alex, that you're, you're coming to the end of the term of this plan, but the next yeah. plan will, I guess the vision of the plan remains the same for your organization. And, and there isn't a fundamental U-turn or change that you see in the direction. But you know, what do you think still remains to be done uh, in terms of where you are now from where the plan was and it started in 2015? Well, since, uh, the, like, I, I'm trying to remember the time frame. The biggest change was, um, and it's, it's, it's going back to what I said earlier about staff involvement. Um, we asked staff to, and it was a facilitated process, to review um, the mission, vision, purpose and values and develop principles of behavior. So that work is complete and that will be the precursor to the next plan. Great. Um, that will then get replicated in their involvement in, in iterating the next plan. And then we're right now researching some uh, technology solutions to help take the strategic plan, create an operational plan and then drive um, staff plans out of that so that yep. everything is then connected. And then there is a rhythm starting with staff meetings to board meetings to quarterly reviews to semi-annual reviews to annual general meeting and communication to board to 
to staff team members and to club members. And so we're trying to, the number one goal is to integrate the strap plan into the organization much deeper from an operational standpoint. Yeah, fantastic. Where you are now uh, talking about those kinds of things compared to where we were when we we met uh, to discuss the possibility of, of starting this plan in 2015, how and where do you think you're better as a club? I think we're still on this path. We started the journey towards becoming more accountable mm. from top to bottom in the organization, being more transparent with our uh, members and our stakeholders. Um, and I think that that's been good progress and was important to, to get done. And now we'll see if we can move it, move the needle even further in regards to operational integration. Alex, it's always a marvelous pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I, I'm really in awe of the work you've done over the last five years at that club and, and before that as well, because as I said, your organization has a tremendous reputation out there of uncompromising excellence. And you've done a great job and developed so many great players and have such a strong identity, not only uh, on the West Coast, but across the whole soccer community in Canada. I can tell you that I've received many people contact me who've, who've seen your strategic plan. And I guess they've also seen seen my name on there and wanted to ask how they can replicate it because it, it, to them it seems so comprehensive and well done. So at the very least, it markets your organization to be very, very professional what it does. So um, any closing comments before I uh, let you back to running your club and your and your and the rest of the things you do? Well, it's Friday and I'm heading for some grandson time. Um, <laughs> Good stuff. I appreciate all the kind comments and, uh, and welcome connections from any sports people across the country that, uh, that want to reach out. I'd be happy to help and uh, we can uh, move along this path together. Fantastic. Do that, folks. You'll find uh, Coquitlam Metro Ford's website. Very easy to find. And Alex's details are on there uh, in the board of directors section. So thanks once again, Alex Bonson, for joining us. Stay well out there and stay safe. Thanks, Paul. All the best. Hey, amateur soccer club leaders. Are you looking for a complete reference on how to run a great amateur soccer club, but all you can find are books on how to coach kids? Introducing Amazon's number one bestseller, Don't Blame Your Soccer Parents your complete guide on how to run a successful amateur soccer club, covering everything from managing your boardroom to overseeing your director of coaching or raising corporate sponsorship. Based on real-world experiences from internationally renowned sports consultant and professional speaker Paul Berry, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents rolls its sleeves up and tackles all the hands-on club management issues you need to master. Governance, planning, staffing, volunteers, finance, technical oversight, marketing, evaluation, and more. You'll find it all in the most comprehensive soccer club management reference on the market today. Pick up your copy on the Amazon platform or at don'tblamethesoccerparents.com today. Imagine not having the chance to play sports as a kid. Imagine not having those memories, those experiences. Imagine your childhood without them. If I wasn't able to play, I would have missed my friends. I will miss being active and the chance of being competitive. Basketball has taught me how to work as a team, how to co communicate and how to adapt to any situation. My goal it is to play for Team Canada and make it to the WNBA.
The skills kids learn through sports are carried with them throughout their lives. But all across Canada, kids are being left on the sidelines because they don't have the resources to play. We owe all kids a chance to experience everything that sport has to offer. Help unleash the full potential in every child. Visit kidsport.ca so all kids can play. Welcome back, everyone. Our next guest brings us outside the sport of soccer to learn from another great strategic planning example, this time in the sport of rugby. Rugby Ontario, who, as the name suggests, are the governing body for the sport of rugby in the province of Ontario in Canada, have recently released their new strategic plan through 2025, adopting a new vision of rugby for all. And what for me makes this plan special and intriguing is not only the manner with which Rugby Ontario went about developing it, but also what the plan fundamentally focuses on. Led by a committed and highly engaged planning task force that blended both board and executive leadership, Rugby Ontario effectively used the pandemic break in regular rugby activities to take effectively a kind of a long, deep breath and engage in in-depth outreach and conversation with the rugby community in Ontario, really about the future of the game. Uh, and really well over the course of a year or probably more, the process gathered a huge bank of opinion and different perspectives on the game of rugby and how it and perceptions of it need to be modernised to fit what is valued, respected and sought after now by society and what it looks for in the future. I had the pleasure of working with Rugby Ontario as they moved this huge bank of feedback and opinion first into a clearly defined value system through which to shape a new culture for the game and in turn into strategy to guide the organization's activities in implementing this new identity over the years to come. And the result is a compelling plan that's exciting for the reasons of what Rugby Ontario has decided it stands for and commits to as much as what it says it's going to do. I chatted with Rugby Ontario's Chief Executive Officer, Miles Spencer, about how they went about building this fantastic new vision for rugby in Ontario. Have a listen. Miles Spencer from Rugby Ontario, welcome to the Regista Room. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, great to have you on, Miles, and uh, really excited to chat um, because obviously we're talking about strategic planning in this in this episode of the Regista Room. And I, th I thought it'd be great to get you on and just have a little bit of a conversation about the recent work you've done at Rugby Ontario, developing your new strategic plan. And, you know, let me first off say, as I've said before, this is a fantastic plan. This is one of the best plans I've seen, certainly recently. And one of the things that makes it a great plan in my mind is how well you've you've done in linking this plan to overall culture, overall identity you're trying to drive, not only in your organization, but in the game of rugby at large. So maybe just for for our listeners' um, benefit, maybe you could just give us a little bit of a sort of um, an overview as to how the game of rugby has been changing over the last 10 to 20 years and, and how as the governing body for the sport here in Ontario, you're trying to actively manage and, and, and drive that. Uh, thanks, Paul, and uh, appreciate the compliment around the, the, the plan itself. A culmination of a lot of work and a lot of consultation with our community, but uh, really proud of the outcome and uh, setting the new direction for our organization and the sport of rugby in Ontario over the next few years. Um, to, to answer your question, you know, rugby has been uh, an evolving sport in our province here in Ontario and across the country. Um, as you say, over a decade plus, um, the game is, is increasing in, in popularity. Um, we're, we're, we're contending with 
the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic and, and what that's doing to uh, to change the, the landscape for sport. However, um, you know, I feel that we've got uh, a great foundation from our community itself in terms of the culture that exists uh, in rugby, um, the, the deep-rooted community connection that, that rugby clubs and organizations have always had historically uh, in our communities across um, Ontario and, and Canada. Um, that being said, we're in a situation where we have to look at how not only the sport landscape has changed, but how how society has has changed uh, in recent years, and and how perhaps COVID nineteen has been a a big driver of some of that. But um, those are realities that aren't unique to, to our sports. Certainly being felt by all sports, all sectors um, across uh, across the country. Um, but rugby specifically continues to be a uh, you know a niche sport in, by and large. Um, we're trying to change that narrative um, from from being labeled a niche sport. We want it to become the most inclusive and accessible sport um, there is in this country. And that's something that I know that my colleagues in other provinces and at the national body uh, share in that vision of, of wanting to be that sport. Um, but our focus in our new strategic plan, as our as our vision rightly says, is, is rugby for all. But it's going to take a lot of effort um, to, to realize that vision of rugby for all. We know that. Um, we've definitely reoriented our strategic direction around uh, making sure that we can provide unique value to those that participate in our game. And, and by those that participate in our game, I mean not just those playing or coaching or refereeing, but of course, those that are leading our clubs, um, leading the organizations that truly create those participation opportunities. As a governing body, we've got a broad mandate uh, in that regard, of course. But um, what we've tried to do with our new strategic plan is is really to uh, to focus around supporting our club community and and building belonging. Um, and making sure that what we do um, and how we do it services the 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 diverse communities that we ultimately uh, serve and support. Yeah, I mean, look, and 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 folks, if you haven't taken a look at the plan, go to um, rugbyontario.com and 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 take a look at it. It's a, it's a brilliant plan. Fundamental to it, you know, Miles is is this this sort of five point um, you know framework you have that really not only allows sort of strategy to flow very easily out, but I think really just forms a great sort of framework for, for, for how you want rugby to be in, in going into the future. And just, just to reiterate, there's five main points. The first one is supporting um, the, 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 the club community. Second one, building belonging. Third one, perform with excellence. Fourth one, advance a rugby culture. And the fifth one, invest in the future, which really speaks to the concept of, of sustainability. Um, Bring us through how you got there, because I know there's a lot of discussion from your with your board, with your task force that that crafted this, and a huge amount of consultation you took, not just over a matter of months, but really over the course of a full year, right? Absolutely, yeah. We we delivered a strategic plan that was the culmination of a lot of work um, over a fairly protracted period of time. Of course, the pandemic, like many of our projects and and initiatives in the last couple of years certainly impacted um, our timeline, but uh, we we utilized that extended timeline uh, to, in the way I feel to our benefit. Uh, allowed us to to really dive deep into some really important topics, things that were 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 surfacing quite consistently in the outreach and consultation that we were doing. Really important thematic um, areas uh, that we have to focus on, um, not just a need to, we have to focus on some of these things. If we truly want to, to continue that growth trajectory, um, you know, our sport has been 
plateauing in terms of some of the growth. We, we struggle with some retention issues uh, in rugby in Canada. Um, and that's a well-known fact uh, amongst my stakeholder uh, colleagues in the various provinces and at Rugby Canada. It's something that we want to really address. And some of the ways we need to do that is by looking within and how we actually operate as an organization, what our values are, the commitments that we'll make to how we will operate. Um, and so those really drove our, our decision-making around the five, uh, the five strategic areas of focus, as you just described. Um, and the way we came, brought those together was through this sort of hub and spoke concept of having our vision at the core of that, really rugby for all, to be successful in achieving those, those targets and those KPIs that we've identified in those, those specific areas, we have to be successful in each of the other areas. Uh, and so moving away from a very siloed um, approach where in the past we've been very output focused, um, this strategic plan we're being very outcome focused, that's by design. And in terms of an example here would be for us to truly support our club community, we gotta make sure that we're building belonging uh, and that we're making sure that we're providing resources and directing our, our own operations in ways that are gonna make sure that our sport is is representative of the communities that we serve um, and that we deliver rugby in. And that will ultimately help grow the game and grow participation, which helps us support and strengthen our club community. Um, that's one basic example. I think it's fantastic that you started where you did with that strategic framework and even just listen to you talk now, you know, Miles, and the examples you're using, the interconnectedness of it all becomes very apparent because, you know, you mentioned your previous strategic plan and maybe the, the, the previous view on planning was kind of output focused. I would say the majority of sports strategic plans I see are like that. Um, and what you end up doing, of course, is you end up achieving a lot of tasks, but like to what end? <laughs> and they're not often very linked together very well. But to hear you talking about outcomes, which really matter, that's really what you're doing it all for. That 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 seems to just create a lot clearer knowledge and understanding as to what resources you're going to put into and why um tell tell me i mean uh, obviously this plan has just been written but there's a lot of honesty in this plan and there's a lot of places you're going to that i think some people might find a little difficult or scary especially the areas where you're acknowledging that there's a lot of people you want to bring this game to um there's a lot of work to be done in 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 driving inclusion in a real sense and what that looks like. How are you going to use this plan to really make a difference now in uh, in rugby in Ontario, particularly in the community? First and foremost, the strategic plan, uh, as we say right in the plan, is a building block for um, the, a new era for rugby in Ontario. Um, it's, it's one focused on cultivating the culture of, of rugby for all, as, as I've said a few times uh, with you today. Um, this is going to take time. Uh, this is this is the starting point um, in terms of our new direction. But uh, as you as you've rightly pointed out, we've we've made it very honest um, through our process of, of engagement with our community and, and surveying and the outreach that we did. We asked some very hard questions um, of the community so that we could pull back on um, the realities and the perceptions and the expectations and needs that exist within our community. You could say we made ourselves a bit vulnerable in that regard. And I think that's a really important piece uh, in, in ensuring that we are transparent or as an organization, we are open. And of course, as you say, we're, we're honest with ourselves. And so uh, I hope that that is uh, certainly um, recognized by others that, that have a read of our strategic plan. Um, you know, we've made some specific commitments in terms of how we're going to operate 
as, as staff, as a board of directors, as, as a community. Um, it hinges around communication and engagement, trustworthiness and transparency. Those are all pieces that are vital to a, a strong organization um, that can be positioned for growth. So in terms of where we're going to invest our time and our effort and resources, of course, as you can tell, there, it's going to be in many forms and in many ways um, as we have a broad mandate as a, as a provincial sport organization. But we really want to invest in, in strategies that are going to make rugby as safe and positive and inclusive as, as possible. You know, the, the, the shift in, um, in focus around equity, diversity and inclusion in particular um, means that we have to have a far more concerted effort around how we actually operate, how we design programs, how we uh, interact with our, our constituents, those playing the game, uh, our members, those that are, are supporting the leadership of our game. And so to do that, we've identified a number of strategies um, and, and, and reasonable targets uh, set around these specific strategies that will help us adopt and, and promote uh, new approaches to, to building belonging, as, as we've called that strategic uh, area of, of focus. Um, we ultimately want to create opportunities for lifelong participation in rugby. Rugby is a sport for all. Um, and what we'd like to do is, is see there is an opportunity for new community members to come into our sport that might not be familiar with rugby, that might not have um, that same cultural tie. Um, but as, as, as we all know, um, Canada and, and Ontario in particular are very multicultural um, uh, places, country and province. And uh, we want to make sure that we are able to position rugby um, so that truly is representative of all the communities that we serve. Um, not just from an ethnicity standpoint, but also um, underrepresented and equity equity deserving groups um, that that we often uh, know that perhaps feel uh, that that sport isn't as inclusive and as welcoming as it could be, um, and that's something that we're comfortable admitting and um, and are really proud to be taking this step forward to uh, to drive some meaningful change in our in our sport. Well, I, th- I think you're to be commended again on 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 the plan as an organization. When I read this plan, you know, it's it, you haven't fallen guilty and fallen into the trap that I think we often do in sport, which is just to look very inwardly into the system as it is and, and program and plan for that group. You know, you're looking very much beyond what rugby is and traditionally has been and, and to what it could be. And you know, over a thousand people consulted in the development of this plan. I mean, you've really gone to the core of talking to your stakeholder base, which is which is really, really impressive. And even coming out of that, um, not just simply saying, okay, we cater just for the group who are currently, you know, paying dues to Rugby Ontario. There's a there's a real um flavor in this plan that we want this game to continue to be, as your new vision statement states, rugby for all. And um, and that may be, you know, beyond what the game looks like now and the people who are playing it. Who are playing it right now um but it's a great plan and i, I want to congratulate you know not just you ma as a ceo but um you know i know there are a lot of people um in your sport who are very passionate about what the game can be and were very clear on um on what this sport should become and who it's for and and what success ultimately looks like so um, best of luck with the implementation of it i know it must be a little daunting for you and your team to look at all of this and go we have a lot of work to do here, but I guess that's a sign of a good plan, right? Absolutely, Paul. I mean, we are on the cusp of our rugby season starting here in, in just over a week's time. And, um, you know, it's the first season launch since 2019. 
uh, if you can believe that. So yes, we have a, a great new strategic plan to guide us. Um, we are most excited about the fact that, that rugby is back in this province and um, we certainly have a lot to get to work on, but um, it's, a, it's a great time ahead and we're really excited. So pleased to have the opportunity to chat with you today. Well, thank you so much, Miles Spencer, Chief Executive Officer of Rugby Ontario. Thanks for joining me on the Register Room. Want to tell us what you think of the show and things we could do to make it better? Tell us now at comments at registerroom.com. So there's two great case studies on developing a strategic plan. But now let's broaden our thinking a bit and explore how the past couple of years may have impacted on the art of planning, not only in amateur sport, but in the not-for-profit association space at large. So yes, private corporations exist in the amateur soccer system, particularly private academies and so on, and they do great work. But in general, amateur soccer organizations are not-for-profit, membership-based associations, societies, or other not-for-profit structures of some sort. To that end, I think sometimes we forget that we are, for the large part, members of a broader not-for-profit community that experiences the same benefits, frailties, opportunities, and challenges that we do in sport. Other associations may not run soccer programs, but they certainly have similar challenges with membership, cost, revenue streams, and revenue mix, volunteer reliance, and overall relevance, frankly, in the changing modern world. Meredith Lowe is an expert management consultant who drives organizational effectiveness in many types of membership-based associations and commercial organizations for that matter. And she's experienced in assisting not-for-profit membership-based associations in developing their strategic plans. And like me, she's been alongside the sector's leadership as they have managed their way through these volatile, uncertain years. And she's seen how they've managed the challenges of planning their activities during this time. I caught up with Meredith to see what her perspective was on the changing phase of planning as we move into a post-pandemic phase for the not-for-profit sector at large. Have a listen. Meredith Lowe from Meredith Lowe Consulting. Welcome to the Register Room. Well, thank you. Wonderful to have you on and wonderful to talk to a fellow consultant here and we can compare notes it's been an interesting few years uh, i'm sure for for you as well as it has been for me but i really appreciate you coming on um, meredith to to really chat with me a bit about how the whole area of planning and particularly strategic planning has evolved over these kind of crazy few years that we've had uh, just for the benefit of our listeners you work with a whole variety of not-for-profit associations, some of which are maybe sport and recreation related, but you do a lot of work in trade associations and broader not-for-profits as well, right? Yeah, I work a lot with um, professional associations and trade associations, and I work with some uh, you know, charities, you know, so say like a humane society. Right, um, right. I've been working lately in a really wide range of uh, sectors, and it really feeds my curiosity that way. So I've worked in recently in healthcare and childcare and um, uh, a retail organization and um, uh, let's see insurance. There's an insurance organization I've been working with. Fascinating <laughs> stuff. So I'm, I'm the kind of person uh, who um, I've got a mental health organization I'm working with. 
um, uh, medical technology. So wow. it's, I really, really like having that kind of uh, breadth. I have worked with some sort of more sport and recreation organizations in the past, but I, I really like the opportunity to sort of hear how things are going in various segments, various sort of neighborhoods of, of the society and the economy and sort of just hear how people approach things. We've seen in the sport business, you know, a real sort of commoditization of sport, sort of the, I think the assumption has been in amateur sport that you sort of, you join the association, which let's call it your local soccer association to buy soccer programs. And that ostensibly is true. But what, what, what we went through that was really interesting over the last couple of years is we suddenly couldn't sell soccer programs. So what's the value of the club now? And a lot of clubs were forced to, I think, really think, all right, well, what, what is our relationship with our membership? And and how do we foster that and keep that going when we can't play sports? And it's been to their betterment, uh, Meredith, at the end of the day, because this concept of belonging and this concept of an association or a club being more than just about what you materially or transactionally buy from them has really mm-hmm. brought home. Have, have you seen that the, the pandemic sort of strengthen that value as well, or at least have associations understand that they're more than selling educational services or whatever it might be? I think there's that. I think the answer to that is probably fairly mixed, right? So some associations, uh, in in some members' minds, really stepped up and um, fought for their members in the context of you know pandemic supports or pandemic policies and things like that. So some, um, I know some associations. Uh, had a very frantic time, you know, 2020, 2020 uh, 2021. Um, it, it, and things were very, very intense for the senior leadership, for the board, for all the staff, for, you know, a lot of the volunteers. Some membership-based organizations really stepped up for their members during the time of, you know, very deep crisis. Some kind of disappeared um, for their members. And so I think there's a real variation in terms of whether the relationship was strengthened or not. I think in terms of delivering services, um, a lot of organizations that had been completely reliant on in-person uh, activities for their revenue model, for a lot of the services that they delivered to uh, to members and so on, um, you know, education, but also networking or, you know, things like that. If you were heavily, heavily reliant on in-person and you just threw your hands up and gave up and said, well, we'll just wait, then you had a rough time. But if uh, lots of organizations really recognized the opportunities of uh, being in uh, it, I mean, Canada, we say that we have too much geography and too few people, and I don't think that's you know necessarily accurate. But the fact is that Canadian organizations should be excellent um, at um, at serving people in remote and rural and smaller communities, you know, scattered across a, a large geography, right? A lot of people have a long way to go to get to services, activities, recreational activities, right? And so figuring out how to serve people like that virtually, um, is something to think through. And so maybe in the sporting area that that has to do with um, thinking through how to serve people in uh, rural and remote communities a little bit differently. If you're say a provincial sporting organization or a national sporting organization, like how to overcome those barriers to accessibility. And so that's the broader lesson I would I would love to see people think through is um, COVID really forced people through the virtual door as in terms of service delivery. And I think that there are some really interesting possibilities that that open up there. Now, obviously, if you're talking about sports, that's usually something that people actually do, you know, in person and you actually do it. But uh, but I think that broader question of how do we serve a, a, 
communities that aren't necessarily geographically concentrated um, really well. And recognizing the importance of doing that, I think that's really come to uh, come to the forefront for uh, for membership-based organizations. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because a lot of the, particularly the sports governing bodies over that period of time, they took the opportunity to move um, a lot of their educational and certification uh, services online fully. So, so and that resulted interestingly in doubling, tripling, or sometimes quadrupling of enrollments in these courses. And guess where those people were from, Meredith? Northern, yep. Northern Canada, rural Canada, these places where they couldn't or wouldn't drive X number of hours and book hotel space and and the cost of getting your license would be not just the cost of the license, but two, three days out of your life and all of that travel uh, cost involved too. So you're absolutely right. That That is, I think, where, where there's been kind of a silver lining to this. Let's yeah. move to the planning conversation. Obviously, you do a lot of strategic planning. Um, you've done it before the COVID. You probably did it like me during COVID, which was kind of interesting. And now hopefully coming out of it and it'll continue. Tell us how you've seen your clients and the association's approach to strategic planning change over that period of time, if at all. Or are you seeing people still see it, you know, in terms of how you build it and how you look at it and how you use it the same as it was in 2019? Or have you seen a graduation and change there? That's a good question. I think the answer, you know, continues to emerge, right? Because strategic planning is something that you don't necessarily do, you know, I, I, annually or not not at the same uh, level of intensity anyway. It tends to be something that you'll devote a significant amount of resources to every maybe three years. Maybe you do checkups every year, but um, uh, so it's a, it's a little bit more periodic. So certainly lots of organizations just kick that can down the road <laughs> during, during the height of, um, uh, of the pandemic times uh, in the early years, I think because, you know, partly because everybody was, was very busy and it was just really, really hard to, um, uh, to, to see ahead. Um, so I, I think a few things that I've seen since then, though, since sort of, sort of the great pause, um, uh, one is, a greater appreciation of the need for scenario planning, whether a standalone or really incorporating that into your strategic planning. And one of the things I always say is your strategic plan is wrong. You have to implement it to find out how wrong it is. And you have to keep adjusting it as you implement it. Because the idea that we, you know, at, at some point we have a crystal ball that tells us exactly how the next three years is going to play out, what we're capable of, what the outside world is going to do, how people are going to respond to anything we might try. And that's just, you nonsense, know, always nonsense, been nonsense. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and uh, you know, the pandemic made fools of us all, but some of us mm. you maybe saw it coming a little bit <laughs> better in terms of, you know, plans make fools of us all, right? Um so uh, so I think that there's a, a stronger embrace, or at least I hope there's a stronger embrace of this idea of uncertainty in planning, this idea of um, that you, that I, I also talk about plans as hypotheses, right? Any, and all your strategies are a set of hypotheses about what's going to be, what you're going to be capable of, and also what's going to have the impact that you want to have, right? Um, and so I think the idea of of playing out scenarios and playing out sort of how are things going to going to work? Are we even just simple scenario planning tools? Like, are we going to have mid range or is it going to be lower or higher? Like, and um, 
it, most not-for-profit organizations sort of tend to have a plan and then they plan, then they work to that plan. And there's not any sense of, well, we can have wiggle room or um, uh, we can build in uncertainty or we can build in contingencies, right? So I'm seeing more receptivity to building plans that that are um, uh, more solid in terms of what you can be more certain about and then fuzzier in good ways about the yeah. things that you cannot be so certain about. Yeah. So, you know, for me, strategies are all about choices, right? You're making a choice given the, based on what you understand to be true. I used to say what you know to be true, but what do we know really, right? And you never have full data. So it's what you understand to be true and what you believe to be possible. So it's strategy is the set of choices given all of that, that you think are going to help you fulfill your mission, help you fulfill your, your aims. and um, and I'm see, definitely seeing sort of tighter thinking and decision-making about how does that all hang together. And so I think metrics can help you recognize what exactly that strategy is trying to achieve. What you're, you're making this choice, but why did why this choice versus that choice? So I really, I am seeing a tightening, a logical tightening up and, and real people seem to be quite receptive to that. So uh, I mean, certainly some volunteers have fallen off and just, you know, they've just got other things happening. And and um, so volunteerism, you know, remains a challenge in a lot of areas. But the volunteers that I'm working with, the volunteer board members, um, are, are really being thoughtful about, you know, what are we going to do? What makes us think it's going to work? How are we going to check and see if we got it done? And then how are we going to see if, you know getting it done led to the outcome we were hoping for. Um, and so in in areas where, you know, for instance, if you're trying to do advocacy, if you're trying to shift public opinion on something, if you're trying to get the government to do something different, it is very hard to have tight KPIs because, you know, you just, it takes a long time to move those battleships around and, you know, maybe there's heavy weather, you can't tell what direction you're going in. Anyway, that analogy is probably limited, yeah. but um, it, it's, it's very challenging to have KPIs yeah. that are really, um, uh, really tight. And I think probably at the provincial and national level, sports organizations uh, hit those issues. But um, but people really are looking for logical framework, logical, and it, how does the logic fit together of a plan? Yeah. As, a, yeah. as opposed to just, we're going to say something very high level and fuzzy, and then the staff are going to keep doing the things they've always been doing, and they'll measure the heck out of them. That's yes. People, people want to see how it fits together better, I think. It, it remains to be seen, I think, for me to see how strong the values conversation will continue to be. And I think that it it falls upon good people to keep driving that forward because the the social energy for that may not um uh may not continue to be um sustained in the same way. Uh so it may um uh, it may be that it will take, you know, if people will have to push it more uphill, right? Um, I don't think it's rolling downhill in the way that it that it was before, just in terms of people raising those points and and so on. Um, having said that, I think that there are also constituencies, and and I would say it is the lucky organization that have a has a constituency within it that's you know essentially holding up the list of values that's on the website, saying, "Hey, see these values that you have diversity and inclusion and accessibility and equity and you know values that 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 raise those points," and then they can point to programs, activities, you know, gatekeeping, standard setting, whatever, that doesn't actually align with those values. And I think that's going to continue. And I think that 
organizations that have those constituencies within them should count themselves lucky because the alternative is people just walk away. I guess final question here. I mean, we, we talk about a successful strategic plan, right? And in your experience, what, what is that? And if there is such a thing, um, what have organizations done well to make it successful? So I'm obviously I'm moving a little bit into implementation and you know evaluation and outcomes and all those kinds of things. But you know, you know, I've seen evaluations where we just basically tick boxes beside the outputs we've accomplished and move on to the next one. But what you know, if I was a skeptic of strategic planning, I said it's just Meredith, it's just not worth the effort. You know, just just go through your day and just forget about the planning. And and you would just say, well, no, and here's an example of why. What is that, and and how has that come to be? That's a pretty big question, but that's what that's why you're on the register room, Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what is a successful strategic plan? I mean, I think the way that success, I think, feels to the people who are involved in that plan. Um, and and I talk to you know the chief staff officer at the end of a of a planning process, and you know I always ask like, how do you feel about this? Does does it feel, you know, uh, overwhelming? Does it feel um, boring? You know, are you bored? <laughs> you know, is it un, is it un, you know, uh, too not ambitious enough? Is it is it not inspiring to you, or or does it does it make you feel you're you've just got a million things to do and always will? And and obviously, I'm aiming for something in between, right? Yeah. Where people right. feel like they have a sense of. Um, uh, what needs doing, but they don't feel like they have to, you know, sort of um, uh, empty the ocean teaspoon by teaspoon. Right. Um, right. So that's, I think that's part of a successful strategic plan at the, you know, at the the day that you, you know, call it final and stop calling it draft, right? Yeah. Um, if that day ever comes, I'm not sure that day really ever <laughs> comes, but um, uh, but a successful strategic plan, I think for the organization, and and I think we've seen that in some of the organizations that had good solid strat plans, leading into the pandemic. I think a successful strategic plan is one that allows you to adapt to unforeseen circumstances. Obviously, they're not always going to be so massive as a pandemic, but like I uh, like I was saying the other day to a board, we're not entitled to one crisis at a time, right? right. Um, you know, all sorts of things could happen and, and probably will. Um, the world, I think, is getting a little weirder. Um, so a good strap plan lets you pivot with un- unforeseen circumstances. I think it ensures that decisions are made at the appropriate level. So the board needs to provide enough strategic guidance that the decisions made at the operational level, whether that's by staff or volunteers, are informed by the directions the board wants to take, but aren't there, but their hands aren't tied. I think that's also a successful strategic plan is that you have at the level of strategies, the, the board is making the decision and providing adequate strategic guidance that it's it's still high level, but it's not just, you know, airy and and vague. And then at the tactical level, you've developed the tactics enough that staff are empowered to go and make decisions, understanding that they understand that they know how it all fits together and what they're trying to accomplish. So I think that's where the whole the whole structure fits together. Yeah. Um, and, and what I was saying before about like having you know understanding the logic of everything. If people understand the logic, then at every level you can you know you can explain to a given committee or to a given you know uh, subgroup within your organization. Hey, here's the big picture. Here's how you 
fit in. And here's all the stuff that you can figure out. But also we want to hear about that because there is such a thing as emergent strategy and you want to hear how things are actually being implemented. So you want to have that flexibility, um, not just for unforeseen circumstances, but for delightful surprises. Right. Right. So so a, a successful strategic plan, I think, is one that advances the organization in the direction of of meeting its mission, given the circumstances, yeah. right? Um, and so it it doesn't rake people over the coals for not being able to deliver in person programs during a global pandemic, yeah. Um, yeah. but it but it also doesn't uh, keep people so stuck that they just sit on their hands and they and they say, well, you know, couldn't do that thing that we wrote about three years ago. So I guess we're you know, gonna yeah. gonna take the day off. You know, yeah. And so interesting, you give that sort of an uh, analysis of success. I completely agree with you for what it's worth. And, and and I find myself very often working with clients, particularly if they're at community level, and a lot of what they do is is very granular in nature. They tend to get into tactical stuff very quickly when they're trying to craft strategy. And I'm constantly trying to pull them up. And to your point, it's probably fair to say, isn't it, that the more granular you get, the less effective your strategy will be over time because it becomes irrelevant or it doesn't give you the wiggle room you refer to. It becomes very prescriptive. Right. And that's a big rabbit hole sport goes down. We love to program things, Meredith. We, we, we're great. I always say in sport, you give us the coins in your pocket and we can go run a sport program in that field over there, but we won't be able to tell you how it did and we won't be able to tell you why we did it. <laughs> so yeah, so, yeah. so we, we're not good at the stuff around the actual acts of programming, but we're absolute ninjas of programming. And so... Planning tends to get that way, and I'm, you know, but you're saying, and I think you're quite right. Have the courage to make your strategic plan big and broad and nebulous, because you need that flexibility to build programming, um, different directions, different resource capabilities, different things that are thrown at you. As you said, it's never one crisis at a time. And if you're literally saying we're going to be deploying this operating budget into this program activity on this date three years from now, A, it's not nonsensical, and B, it's just not effective, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you have, say, a three-year plan, a great deal of your year three planning should be TBD, right? I mean, yes, you know, depending yes. depending on how this other thing went, right? Um, the nice thing about a three-year plan is if you're trying to develop something new, you can have, you know, year one is explore, year two is test, year three is implement, right? So that's yeah, the nice yeah. thing about a three-year plan. But um, yeah, I would really... I, I think I would really, the, the challenge when you have a very operational group of people, right? When the board is typically people who are hands-on, you know, handing out the orange slices or whatever mm-hmm. it is, um, and, uh, or, or book in the fields, or, you know, if, if they're very hands-on in the organization, um, a strategic plan, I think you also don't want to overburden the idea of a strategic plan. If you have a, yeah. a small organization and it's very community-based, um, I think you want to keep it simple, but I would say that that's where vision and mission actually get to be uh, important yeah. and having some sense of, okay, is our mission to um, ensure excellence in this sport or, I mean, and I'm making these up or is our mission to try to get everybody to try it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, no, that, obviously that, that's actually a, a very big conversation that we always come down to yeah. is are you about athletic performance or more people playing and it's very different yeah. programming around those two different directions. Yeah, absolutely. That would that would take you in all sorts of different directions, mm-hmm. right? And and so just continuing to go back to that and continuing to go back to that. And so um that's where again I think, you know, what picking your met- metrics uh is deceptively important, right? Yeah. Because is is it and and so keep it a short list of metrics, 
right? If your if your mission is all about get more people to try the sport, right? If you want mm-hmm. if you want to maximize the number of people playing pickleball mm-hmm. in you know Hamilton, then mm-hmm. you know then um, then your metrics are all about number of people who tried it, number yeah. of people who came yeah. back twice, number you know yeah. that's that's the kind of metrics that you're interested in. You don't you don't care who won anything. Matt yeah. Meredith, it's been tremendous speaking to you. The great Meredith Lowe, I will say. Thank you so much for joining me here in the Regista Room. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. It's a real pleasure. Need help managing your amateur sport organization but don't know where to turn? Look no further than Capitus Consulting, your dependable partner to help you through the challenges and issues you routinely face in and around your sport boardroom. At Capitus Consulting, we're different. We've directly managed amateur sport organizations from community club to national governing body. We understand your side of the fence because we've been there ourselves. We know from experience what makes sport organizations successful and where they go wrong. Reach out to us today at capitusconsulting.ca and let's start building your sport business today. So, all good organizations plan well and amateur soccer organizations are no exception. It may not excite some people, particularly traditional sport volunteers, who'd obviously much rather be on field coaching, convening tournaments or organizing events. But it's essential to what you do and a key element of what makes great amateur soccer clubs great. In this episode of the Regista Room, we've shown how Capitalist Consulting's 10-step process to building a great strategic plan works. And if you're interested in more on this, Rent the tutorial on strategic planning at capitalistlearning.com and it's all laid out for you there. But we've also seen from Rugby Ontario that modern sports strategic plans are way more than the arbitrary business of deciding what you want to do as an organization. Modern strategic plans entrench their organization's vision and mission at their core and answer clearly the question, what are we trying to do and why? And crucially, The best strategic plans drive decision-making and behavior in everyone associated with the organization that uphold core values, build organizational culture, and create organizational identity. So we move beyond the question of what are we trying to do to the other key questions of why does it really matter, who are we, and what do we stand for? This is the real value and power of sport and what truly matters. It's when people who don't feel included can genuinely see their place. It's when we can raise our kids to where we aspire them to be through sport. And it's where we feel happy, fulfilled, and know that we're making a difference in people's lives that is positive and matters. Planning matters. Don't delay it, dismiss it, or write it off. Get it right. And so many other things will fall into place if you do. My name is Paul Varian, and you're in the Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. As always, it's been my pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe and stay well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. Join us again for the next episode. Subscribe today at capituslearning.com or listen wherever you access your favorite podcasts.